meeting is being recorded. Yeah, so for, for everyone's benefit, I'll just say that we're, we're waiting for everyone to come. Uh, it typically takes uh, half, half a minute or something. And uh, when, when everyone is in, we will start the webinar. Uh, and I'll introduce everyone. So just just a couple of minutes, and we'll get started. Okay, so um, uh, welcome everyone and uh, thank you for joining us for yet another webinar in our, our IP strategy uh, series. Uh, this time we cover um, a rather interesting subject. We, we usually focus on uh, patent prosecution, trademark prosecution, um, and um, I think one, one of the things everyone in the, in the IP business, uh, both uh, patent attorneys and, uh, and IP owners, uh, come across uh, so this hypothetical question, what if I ever need to enforce and what happens if uh, someone infringes? And um, th th there's, a, there's a whole school of thought of you know, why even bother uh, having uh, IP at all or why even bother having patents at all if uh, enforcing them requires millions of dollars and we don't have millions of dollars and we can't, even if we did, we can't afford to spend it and so on. And um, uh, we've, we've known for a while that there are good solutions to, uh, to asserting uh, strong patterns in, uh, in, in certain cases, and you don't necessarily always need to have these, these millions of dollars. Um, so we thought we'll do, uh, we'll do a webinar about just that issue. Um, and um, I'm very happy to have with me uh, Phil Hastin, who works in the litigation finance industry. Litigation finance uh, is uh, basically specialist funds that, that fund patent litigation uh, or generally litigation in exchange for um, some uh, multiplier on what on, on the money they put in, or or a part of the basically a part of the recovery um, from uh, the case. And uh, um, I think uh, Phil and I have known each other for a while now. Uh, we we met in a conference a few years ago, and at the time he was on the other side, so he was working with uh, with an at an IP owner company with uh, with a licensing uh, campaign. Um, and uh, it'll be interesting to, to hear his perspective on both sides. Um, and uh, Ron Burns uh, is uh, with Fresh IP. Uh, Ron joined us recently to create a litigation practice for us. He's been doing uh, uh, patent litigation for, uh, I think, about a decade now. Uh, right, Ron? And uh, uh, he's based in Texas, where most patent litigation happens, and uh, has done a lot of uh, Eastern District, Western District of, of Texas, uh, litigation and much of that has been uh, creative uh, financial arrangements type. So working with litigation funders doing contingency uh, where, where uh, it's basically the, the law firm funds the litigation. Um, so uh, Ron's uh, very much an expert on this space. Um, and uh, yeah, so uh, uh, two very knowledgeable um, uh, people with me and uh, I'm, I'm a partner at Fresh. I had our European office, um, but uh, this uh, for the purpose of this um, uh, this webinar we're, we're solely focusing on, on the US and I'm just here to facilitate um, and let uh, and let Phil and Ron have uh, an interesting uh, discussion and uh, yeah, yeah with that I'll, I'll pass on to uh, to Phil and then to Ron to say a few words about uh, 
themselves in case I missed anything important and uh, I will crack on straight away. Hi, everybody. My name is Phil Hartstein, uh, based in California. Uh, I am a partner at Soren IP Capital, and we are a funder in and around the IP space. Uh, that often includes intellectual property litigation, funding licensing programs, uh, backstop financing for law firms. Um, but as was, was mentioned earlier, I also come from the operator's perspective. <clears throat> I formerly ran a NASDAQ-listed company called Finjan, and we were enforcing uh, as well as licensing our intellectual property uh, for, gosh, 10 years before I got there and 10 years while I was there. So very successful monetization program. And what I hope to share today is some perspective. Uh, and I think there's going to be an opportunity for the attendees to ask questions. But to the extent that I can give you any perspective on the, the types of funding opportunities uh, that exist for certain use scenarios, um, what may or may not fit, uh, um, you know, in terms of what assets you have. I'm just happy to add that kind of perspective for you, uh, knowing that I can give you some information and insight on both sides of, of what that trade is, the, the funder as well as the fundee. Okay, and uh, my name is Ron Burns. Um, as Zev indicated, I'm uh, with Fresh IP. I'm a patent uh, I started out my career a long time ago as a, in patent prosecution and progressed uh, through law firms, um, starting into litigation on mostly the defense side. Uh, and then a little over a decade ago, probably 12, 13 years ago, struck out on my own to do uh, mostly plaintiff side uh, patent enforcement litigation and monetization programs um, where people have portfolios or acquire portfolios. Uh, it can be portfolios that built themselves, or it can be something that they've, they've obtained from a third party. Uh, but then we go out and enforce those, license those, in some cases, uh, direct licensing, or in some cases, litigate them, uh, sue uh, infringers for patent infringement, and then uh, license them uh, as a settlement. Um, one of the things I think I want to do today is just kind of lay out the, the, I know we have a fair number of practitioners, patent practitioners. I don't know how many of you have uh, exposure to patent litigation. Uh, direct exposure, uh, but lay out some of the possible avenues for uh, enforcement litigation as far as funding goes and as far as what the options may be, and then kind of wrap that into Phil's expertise, which is the, the kind of the final plank in that platform, which is the litigation funding. So uh, for now, I'll turn it back over to Zeb and then see where we want to go from there. It's just a little housekeeping thing that I, I forgot to mention. Um, if you if you have questions, feel free to drop them in the Q and A or, or the chat. Uh, and then and then at the end um, at the end of the session, I, I wouldn't want to interrupt the session because it's not very long. But at the end of it, um, we will answer all the questions. So uh, we'll make sure to uh, not leave any questions unanswered. Um, yeah. So moving from here, um, before we really dive in. Um, I, I think one really interesting thing in, in, the, in this space is um, that patent litigation is perhaps one of the very few uh, areas of law where um, uh, some people asserting their rights uh, have, have been given both a name um, and, and, and an image of a legendary uh, character that is a troll. And um, uh, I, I wonder what is your view on, or both of you, on whether um, uh, non-practicing entities, entities that buy patents and assert them uh, against companies are indeed horrible creatures 
um, or are they a, a, you know, a proper uh, and, and, and uh, you know, suitable player that um, uh, fills the market gap and does something that's, that the market needs, which is to, to allow uh, people without the budget to, to assert patents um, that, that they've invented. So uh, trolls or, or angels, that is the, uh, that is the name of, uh, of this talk. Um, trolls or, or angels? Let's start with Ron this time. Sure. Um, I, I have been uh, representing non-practicing entities for a long time now. Uh, as I alluded to, most of my clients for the last decade or so have been uh, either small operating companies that have a portfolio of their own or they have been non-practicing entities. Uh, the trolls, pejorative, um, I, I don't know that I, I ascribe to that. I don't know about angels per se, but um, it's a property right and it's a property right that can be asserted. And, and unfortunately, the, the patent system and patent litigation system is very expensive. It can be um, very prohibitive for smaller entities to enforce their rights. And large corporations, um, oftentimes, it appears that their strategy is simply to just do their business. And if they infringe, they'll wait until they get dinged for infringement before they respond. But other than that, they just kind of go ahead and do what they want to do. Um, and that becomes very prohibitive for smaller companies or non-practicing entities to go and try to assert against them because they can a larger corporation can bury someone with the cost of litigation. So uh, I think the, tr the trolls, I think the non-practicing entity, first of all, the troll is a, is a is kind of neuro-linguistic programming. It's, it's using language to, to assert a bias before you even really see what's going on. Um, I don't ascribe to that. I think if someone has a property right, they buy, whether they buy it from someone else or they create it themselves, uh, it, they should be able to enforce it. And it is an enforceable right. And if there's you know, a money exchange or some other exchange for the property right, um, then it's theirs to enforce and they should enforce it. Um, and a lot of this creative financing has uh, indirectly come from the non-practicing entities in the way that they go about enforcing it. So I think um, I think it's a good thing, personally. I um, I don't view trolls as a bad thing. Um, I think it's uh, non-practicing entity is is a good is a good vehicle for people who want to pursue that to monetize the patents to do so. And if they've got a way to finance it themselves, or if they're able to work with alternative financing, um, then it's a good way for them to to monetize and make money off those patents. And Phil, do you agree? <sighs> I, have a, I guess I have an interesting perspective. In my, in my prior role as Finjin, you know, you're talking about a company that started in the mid '90s, uh, basically pioneered a new technology. <clears throat> excuse me. Built and sold products around the world, had employees, etc. And just everybody, I think, has heard this classic story of, you know, you're a small company and you invite the large player in and. All of a sudden there's a joint development agreement and one day you wake up and you're scratching your head, realize you're doing a lot of research for this other company uh, and you know you, you bring this to their attention and all of a sudden they tell you, yeah, we're not interested in you anymore. Um, we're not gonna use your technology. And at the next trade show or conference, you stand up and lo and behold, there are your features, uh, the crown jewels of what your company has invented and, and the, the fruits of your labors are up on stage being presented by another company. And so in, in Finjin's story, um, you know, the, 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 basically the premise of what the intellectual property licensing program was, 
was the ability for Fingen to recover its invested capital that was otherwise sort of commandeered in the, in the capital uh, or in the, in the marketplace uh, by other technology pirates, right? And so Fingen was basically pursuing licenses to make sure that it got its fair return for what it contributed. Um, I've also spent a lot of time uh, actually lobbying Congress, another sort of virtue of working for a public company. And when you get in really deep on this issue of, of the idea of whether you're a troll or a non-practicing entity, um, you really come to understand that that was a really successful narrative uh, that was created to, to basically further divide larger entrenched players that maybe can't do the type of research and development uh, on a timeline as required from, because remember, consumers are the ones that buy products. So if con consumer demand outpaces innovation, then there's going to be this sort of grifting, if you will, of intellectual property to meet that consumer demand. And so that narrative, I think, was very helpful in enabling large players to, to do that, to meet consumer demands. Um, I think now what you see though, is that it's so overplayed that large universities, for example, are now being called trolls for enforcing their patents. You know, established players and, and maybe one market moving into a second are now being called trolls. And so I think that narrative really falls apart on itself. And I think really what you're looking for is, you know, are you, are you working with patent assets that have and are still connected to that story of innovation? And so for us at Soren, when we finance things, we do want to make sure that there is that story of innovation that uh, backs that intellectual property rather than just putting money behind a, a pure arbitrage play where I buy it for a dollar and maybe I can make 10. Um, that's just not something that, that we spend our time doing in our business. So, yeah, jumping straight into what sort of uh, cases um, I mean, I think you, you just started touching on that. So a, a case with some story of, of real innovation. Um, what sort of cases get funded or what, what, sort, yeah, what, what sort of cases get funded and what, what sort of case uh, can, um, uh, can get that, that sort of capsule and, and maybe uh, carry on, Phil, uh, and we'll, we'll move back to Ron. Um, sure. I mean, <clears throat> you know, the, the nuts and bolts of it are is if, if, you take it from the investor's perspective. Um, investments are predicated on return profiles. And so if you have a return profile that I want to put out a million dollars and I need to get three back in less than two years because that's my return profile, you know, you're going to seek opportunities that fit your investment profile. Unfortunately, where these two things really collide is that intellectual property has really unpredictable timelines. Um, you know, and, and there's often a lot of uncertainty around how those claims are going to play out in specific district courts around the country. So, for example, you could take the same patent and file a lawsuit, the same lawsuit in California, Texas and Delaware. And not only will you get three completely different outcomes, but you're going to have three completely different cost structures and three completely different timelines. And so I think what you've seen over the last sort of five or 10 years is where financiers have to figure out what risk profile they're willing to accept relative to the returns based on the opportunity to make the investment in specific patent assets or in specific programs. And so the easiest way to highlight this is, you know, 10 years ago, you could have had a single patent that read on a billion dollars of damages, and you would have had people lining up at your door to give you two or $3 million to hire a law firm and pay for costs. 
and to finance that program. Um, what happens is with a lot of those cases now as the law evolves and as this narrative of the troll versus the angel plays out, a lot of district courts just, it's harder to push some of those single patent cases forward, right? So you would never bring a single patent case in California. Uh, you maybe wouldn't bring any number of patent cases in Delaware right now, just given the fact there's you know, some judicial change there. But if you have a reasonable patent portfolio and you were to put it in Texas and you could get some ideas around how long it would take and maybe what the overall expense to enforce would be, you know, I think you're going to start to see that the, the dynamics of the decisions that you make uh, will determine whether or not it's an investable program. So again, now it's matching finance for the type of opportunity. I'm not sure there's a lot of money available for single patent programs, right? One patent, two patents, reads on one or two uh, specific defendants. And the reason for that is because a lot of the financing vehicles that exist are, are non-recourse. That means that if I put money into your case and you lose, I'm out. And what that also means is that because I'm going to lose many of those, the ones that I win, I need to have pricing that reflects the risk. And so that's where you're going to see these two times or three times money out, first money out. I might actually you know, and this isn't Soren's way, but I might stay in your cap table forever just to alleviate that risk. But if there's an opportunity, for example, where let's just say it's an operating business and they have cash on their balance sheet, but it's not allocated for an enforcement program and the portfolio is broad enough that there's a licensing opportunity as well as a, you know, a litigation component to that. Now you're talking about a real program. You're talking about something that's less binary in terms of outcome and also has more opportunities to repay some of the investment and to service that investment over the duration, right? And so I think this is really about figuring out what the program is and what it can be, who the owners are and the breadth of, of what that opportunity is and trying to match that with specific financing opportunities. There are people that want only those litigation finance, the binary outcomes, the high win rates. They think they can price those and win more often than not, and they swing for the fences. And then there's funds like Soren that are more credit-minded, where we're more downside protected. We want to make sure that there's enough income from enough various sources where we don't need to charge as much for our cost of capital, um, but we'd like to see incremental returns, for example, through a licensing program along the way. Right? So we may be more, um, more focused on providing operating capital to the business so that they can support a licensing program while we also support an enforcement campaign. So um, operating company, if possible, multiple assets, um, downside protection in, in the sense that there is potentially a licensing program um, and hopefully high upside. So, um, but maybe less in Soren than in other places, but still there's no point funding a very small, uh, a patent that's, that's uh, infringed, but the damages are very small. So high damages, is that, is that a fair summary? There's, there's one more, and I can't believe I forgot to bring this up. So as a funder, and, and maybe I'm a little unique here having been an operator, and, and by the way, just for the benefit of everybody uh, who is attending this, I'm actually not an attorney, I'm a, I'm a business person. I have a technical background. I've worked in intellectual property my entire career. Um, but this will make sense in a second because as a financier, when we put money behind these programs or behind these law firms, 
That's not because we want to put our hands into those businesses and operate those programs. We can't do that. And so one of the primary and most important components of any investment, aside from the assets, you can do diligence on the assets and you can run your risk models on the financing, but you have to assess the team. If, if it's an opportunity where it's going to be entirely outsourced to a law firm and there's not going to be anybody within the company working to make strategic decisions, operational decisions, and isn't there to run maybe a licensing program or really to understand and to keep tabs on and to actually run the program, that's also a complicating factor uh, when, when thinking about and considering financing an opportunity. When you find a company that actually has an embedded team that understands intellectual property or senior leadership with executive sponsorship, meaning it, you know, someone higher upstairs who's going to get a phone call maybe from a CEO one day on the other end of a licensing discussion is going to be fully briefed about what this program is and isn't just going to capitulate and actually grant a license for free. You know, making sure that the team is savvy and understands the value of the intellectual and has done their work to educate the other executives within the business, that team is going to be a very important diligence component for any investment that we would make. Fantastic. Um, Ron, what, what did uh, Phil miss? <laughs> oh, I don't think Phil missed anything. Phil gave a very good profile of, uh, from a litigation funder's perspective, what the ideal situation would be. Um, I think where I can add something to that is to note that Aside from litigation funders, there are other alternatives to uh, litigate or enforce patents if you don't fit that profile or if your company's got a little bit different um, structure or maybe not the budget and that sort of thing. So aside from litigation funding, uh, obviously you can self-fund your own enforcement litigation. Um, and also there are a number of firms, and you're not going to find this with larger international firms or national firms that are litigation heavy but you can find smaller mid-sized firms and, and practitioners who will do enforcement litigation for you on a contingent basis, full contingency, um, where they take, usually it's a third interest in whatever the recoveries are. And oftentimes they'll ask the, the patent holder or the company to cover all fixed fees. And then whatever is recovered from the actual licensing or litigation, uh, that's shared between on, the, on a percentage basis. Or you can do full fee litigation, of course, and pay whatever law firm you want to pay uh, at their hourly rate. And then the client or the, the company or the individual who has the patents keeps all the recovery, whatever that may be. So I think it's important to note that there's a, there's a, a number of different paths and options. Um, and just because you maybe don't fit a profile for litigation funding doesn't necessarily preclude you from uh, pursuing patent litigation if you feel like it's, it's warranted or monetizing your patents. There's other alternative avenues for that. That's right. <clears throat> so if, if Phil doesn't give you money, you can pay for yourself, um, or you can ask the lawyers to, uh, to, to take most of the risk by, um, uh, by uh, making their fees contingent. Um, but few, few law firms will cover the cost, the, like expert costs and things like that, right? So there's, there's still going to be some cost. Oh, of course. Yeah. Fixed costs. So most, most firms that would do it on a contingent basis, they're going to make their fees contingent uh, and they're still going to do a risk analysis. So they're, if it's a, just a really poor case uh, or not a strong case at all, you're probably not going to find a firm that will do it on a contingent basis or they might do it on a partial contingency uh, and where you pay a reduced hourly rate. 
Um, but in terms of the actual fixed fees for third parties, court filing costs, expert witnesses, that sort of thing, uh, typically a firm that's doing it on a contingent basis, whatever the basis may be, whether it's partial contingency or full contingency, uh, they're going to want the customer, the client, the patent holder to cover the fixed costs. So you're, you're basically pitching, uh, pitching your cases just as if you were pitching um, uh, a tech company. Uh, you're asking for a lot of money from either your, your, the investor or from the lawyer, and you need to uh, convince um, you know, either of them or both uh, that the case is worthwhile and, uh, and is likely to succeed um, in court. What's, um, what's similar um, uh, and what's different? Uh, or what, what, what do you need to show? Uh, let's start with Ron this time, and then Phil will, will tell us if... Uh, um, if we're on the, on the right track, I mean, part of what we do is prepare cases for uh, pitching them to litigation funders. Um, so what, what do you need to show to, um, uh, let, let's say, to, to a litigation funder, because it's not really that different, uh, for them to get comfortable uh, with funding your case? Well, as, as Phil noted, um, first of all, you're going to look at the number of patents to be enforced. Uh, whereas if you're going with a going to a firm or a practitioner to do a contingent basis and, and not seeking litigation funding, uh, they may consider uh, individual patents or, or a couple of patents in a portfolio. Um, but essentially what you're gonna to wanna to do is you're gonna to wanna to show the patents that are involved, show that they have a very strong prosecution history, that there's not a lot of, of um, potential gotchas in the prosecution history of those patents, and then show a case for infringement and show who the potential infringers are, um, how you believe the, the claims read on that, and then some analysis in um, those potential infringers, what damages you might have. And there's two different bases. If you're an operating company uh, and they're truly infringing on what you make, it, your patents, and you make and practice those patents, then you look at a lost profit model um, or you, the other model is a reasonable royalty rate. Um, and you would put some projections together as far as what the, the recovery model might be. And then, um, look at, again, as Phil noted, you look at the team who's going to be doing the program, what the, the company's involvement will be, the background of the, the team that's doing the enforcement and litigation. And with all of those put together, uh, you've got a pretty good profile, regardless of whether you're going to a law firm or to a funder or both. So infringement analysis, uh, defendants analysis, uh, damages analysis, um, anything else? You know, court, court and jurisdiction analysis, maybe? Sure, sure. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Zev. So one of the things you're going to want to do, as, as Phil also alluded to this, is that the, depending <laughs> on where you bring the litigation, um, you're going to have a very different experience. Um, you can bring a lawsuit in California, and it might last four or five years, six years sometimes. Um, you may not get very predictable results, uh, different judges within, a, within the same district may rule very differently on matters. Uh, that's one of the, the big draws for Texas litigation is that, especially in two of the districts in Texas, uh, it's very predictable. Uh, the timeline is very concise and very to the point. Uh, typically you will get a trial date uh, within about two years of your filing and uh, you do you have for claim construction and things move along at a very steady pace. And uh, the jurisprudence, the, the, the comedy between the judges, they all rule very similarly on matters. 
So you can put a, uh, you can reduce some of that risk analysis uh, and eliminate some of that risk because you have a, a degree of predictability depending on where you file. Boy, do I have some stories. I thought, I Go thought when, yeah. when I, I ran a program and, you know, the company that I ran this program for was, was based in California. And everybody knows that California is uh, basically the district that large tech companies want to transfer NPEs back to because they think that there's a, you know, sort of some favoritism here towards larger tech companies. And for us, the decision, and we did our own analysis on this. We looked at the statistics. We understood there's something called the wheel, which is when you file a case, there's this proverbial wheel that gets spun, you know, think wheel of fortune and whatever judge you land on, that's the judge you get. Um, but there was a change in, in how the Northern District of California, for example, was doing that, which is certain judges could opt in and get more credit for patent cases because they take longer and they're more complicated. And judges that didn't want patent cases could opt out. And so California is, I think, a really good example here in, in my experience because the first case that we filed went to trial in 15 months. That's pretty speedy. I don't think you could really find another venue, maybe outside of Virginia at the time, or maybe, maybe Texas, where you could have gotten a faster trial. But very much to Ron's point, there are groups of judges who tend to recognize uh, uh, work that's already been done in prior cases and just sort of adopt that and streamline proceedings. But there are also judges that say, well, hold on a second. I have the seal above my head as well, and I'm going to decide this issue independently. And so it actually complicates, in fact, some of, some of your programs if, if you're caught in this uh, cycle, as I was in the Northern District. Um, and in fact, on the other end of that spectrum, I have a case that has been pending for over nine years. And so when you think about trying to run a program, and especially when you're trying to explain it to a funder, hey, look, we've done our math. We think this is two lawsuits in a licensing program. We think we can be in and out in three years. The funder is going to say, oh, hold on a second, because we're going to have a lot more experience with this. We may look and say, well, not if you're going to be in Delaware, not if you're going to be in California, not if you're going to be anywhere other than in Texas, right? So that venue analysis, I think, is, is going to... Uh, really um, not complicate, but to the extent that you spend time doing the venue analysis, I think it might show a prospective funder that you're really in tune with, with understanding how the financier is going to see the investment. So just, just a little bit more on that. When I ran a public company, you know, I, I, I understood obviously at very in the weeds levels, intellectual property, monetization and enforcement. But when you're running a public company, you've got shareholders and, and even your board. And I had a fantastic board of directors. But the first thing that I really had to do was to understand that it's great that I understand and all of the work that needs to get done around the patent assets or whatever intellectual property is that you're dealing with. But you really also have to adopt and begin to speak the language of finance because if you can't have a constructive communication that bridges all of the technology and intellectual property considerations, but binds them in a finance discussion, it's not going to end very well because you're not going to be on the same plane when you're negotiating terms for your financing agreement. And one of the easiest ways I think that, that patent owners, especially if you're at the very beginning stages of defining a program is 
not just to do like a competitor analysis or who the infringers are going to be, but to start at a level higher and start at a market analysis level. And the reason for that is because if you subscribe to IDC, for example, they have teams of engineers and researchers who define markets and they define them in the context of how they're going to be constructed for the financial investment community to look at how those markets work. So you get some simple benefits like IDC might create a taxonomy and it might say the cybersecurity uh, sector is comprised of these four or five verticals. And in these four or five verticals, we think our patents read on six or seven sub-verticals. Now, what's fantastic about that is that then you can just go and look at those sub-verticals in the same market research and IDC has done the work. They have told you at what rate it's growing, who the top 10 or top 20 competitors are, who's the challengers, what features are actually driving adoption of those respective technologies in specific growth segments. And so it's the easiest way that I have found to sort of educate uh, new uh, sort of people who want to begin monetizing programs to get them educated around how to speak finances, to really get them to dive into market research. And frankly, for me, dragging along a board and educating them, that was the best way that I found to communicate between intellectual property and finance issues was really to center that on all the market research that's out there. So strong market research. Um, and I think we've said uh, that the basic things, which is an infringement analysis um, and uh, court analysis. I think, I think I have, we haven't said validity analysis. Um, is, is that, I mean, wh when you look at the case, Phil, uh, and that, that's being presented to you, I assume you see, um, that, like any investor, you see cases in, in various uh, levels of, of detail and, and maturity. Um, what, what are the things you look at first and what, you know, what, what makes you kind of tick and, and think, oh, you know, this is, this is my, the equivalent of my unicorn uh, opportunity? So I'm, I'm old enough to remember a time when, when validity analysis was just shrugged to the, the side. <laughs> it used to be you could, you could literally separate, you, you could take a patent with the staple and find the page that has the claims and put your thumb in and rip the front of the spec off and just throw it away. And you could read those claims on anything so long as the words fit. But today it's, it's really upended. And so it's a great question because the primary focus first and foremost is on whether or not those patents can survive validity. And the reason is because obviously there's new administrative challenge proceedings through the AIA, you have the IPRs, you have obviously the introduction of additional time and cost to pursue or defend in those IPR challenges. Um, and that is gonna have a huge impact on your program. And not only that, but even I think the original promise of the AIA, which was if we're going to take validity issues out of the district court and put them back into the patent office for, for final resolution in an effort to streamline litigation in the event that's where we're going, that sort of a stopple hasn't really been successfully applied in district court litigation. And so validity, for example, if, if I file a patent lawsuit, and I have to put an immediate stop on everything because my case is going to get stayed in most venues around the country, maybe with the exception of Texas. Um, and I know that I'm gonna have to defend on validity. And I know that even after, if I successfully defend the validity of my patents, I'm gonna then have to go into district court 
and now have validity presented again in front of a, a group of, of lay people, the jury, you really have to understand whether or not validity is going to be uh, an inhibitor in the success of your program. Uh, so I think there's some easy ways to do that. You know, there's obviously a lot of talk around software patents and whether or not those can be enabled. There's obviously everyone has heard of Alice challenge, you know, Alice, you know, section 101 challenges. There are other emerging segments, I think, of the intellectual property, like patent specific area around artificial intelligence that are coming under greater scrutiny. Um, so yeah, I do think that it's harder for certain types of technology, software, e-commerce, some things that happen just over the internet, just in a general communication protocol, AI originated, uh, or AI-focused or algorithm-focused intellectual property, those are harder to invest in just because of the uncertainties and with the high kill rates with the administrative challenge and all of those other review proceedings. So yeah, I do think that that impacts the types of opportunities that, that are, are broadly investable today. I don't know, Ron, did I, did I kill everything? I left some interesting stuff in there. No, actually, I think you did a very good job of covering it. I think um, a lot of what you say speaks to then the quality of your patent prosecution attorney and the way that they're drafting the claims. And if they're drafting them with an eye towards eventual litigation, um, you know, in, in some prosecution, um, folks just want to get a patent issued and they're not really too worried about the enforceability or the, the market value after the fact, after it's issued. Um, but if you've got a good practitioner and, and they're doing a good job with uh, enablement with overcoming 101, you know, putting enough uh, support in the specification for 101 type issues, Alice, um, then you're, you're well set, you're well set. And, and uh, a litigator, when you move to enforcement of the patents can then take that uh, and move very quickly into, you know, 103, 102 issues are pretty straightforward, relatively speaking to handle. Um, as you alluded to, you know, some jurisdictions, you don't really have to stop your litigation, your modernization, your enforcement litigation for the IPR. It's sometimes it's conducted in parallel. Um, and then you get down to the issues of just actual infringement. So, um, no, I think it's, it's very good. I think it speaks to the importance of prosecution, though, and the quality of the prosecution. For sure. For sure. Absolutely. Um, so two, two or three more questions, and then we can take some from from the audience. Um, as you were talking, I was I was thinking uh, about uh, willful infringement, and was wondering what's what's your take. Uh, I mean, suppose there is uh, there's someone listening to us now, either an IP owner or someone representing IP owners, and they they know that some of that there are some patents or uh, that, that are infringed, or some that, that they might want to uh, assert at the later stage, or or there are some applications that are about to be. Uh, issued and, um, and and again they might want to assert at the later stage, um, providing a notice to to potential infringers uh, to establish uh, willful infringement, um, but at the risk of, um, of of whoever gets the notice challenging um, uh, these these patents, um, is is that a good policy? Is that um, is that a bad policy? And do do you have experience with people actually? Uh, if, if uh, you know, because I, I don't think I've seen someone receiving a note. It's not such a common practice, but I don't, yes, people can, can challenge, but do they actually, I mean, do, do, do a lot of companies actually initiate uh, uh, proceedings for canceling patents after receiving a notice or, or is, 
uh, is the general policy ignore? Um, and you know, perhaps, Ron, in a few words, you can explain what willful infringement is for the benefit of anyone who doesn't know. Um, and then, you know, providing notices, good or bad. Sure. So willful infringement uh, is going to be when an infringer has received previous notice of the patent and should be on notice that they potentially infringe the patent, uh, but they nonetheless continue to infringe. Then if you are successful in enforcing the patent against them, get a, uh, a judgment of infringement, uh, then your potential damages uh, can be up to three times. Uh, the, the court or the jury can award up to double damages. Sometimes it's less than that. Sometimes it's a multiplier of two or some fractional part. Um, but you can, you can, it is a, it used to be a, a very, very powerful um, threat. Um, and then the types of notices that technically when a patent issues, uh, that is constructive notice. Uh, but that if you're trying to get willful infringement, that's of little or no value. The, the issue that you're getting at as far as whether you send out notice, um, some people are successful with it. It's not done very often. Um, if you're wanting to, if you know people are infringing and you're just kind of waiting to the patent issues to put them on notice, um, you may invite, like, like you were alluding to, uh, the administrative proceeding. They might then file an IPR right away, or they may file for declaratory judgments uh, of non-infringement and they beat you to the courthouse and they've kind of stolen your thunder. So it's, it's, there's a lot of trade-offs they have to, and it's fact by fact and case by case, the facts of the case have to dictate, I think, which way you go. Um, if you do send notice, uh, it has to be very carefully crafted so that there's not a threat of infringement so that a, that a declaratory judgment action could not be successful, uh, but you're still gonna invite some sort of scrutiny to that. So I think more often than not, it's, it's not done. I think the notice that people receive um, is just the filing of lawsuit service of the lawsuit. Um, unless there are, there are very specific fact patterns. So for example, uh, if a company reaches out to your patent holder and expresses interest in per potentially purchasing the patents, or uh, I think Phil alluded to this earlier, you've got some sort of co-development partnership, uh, and then you find out a year or two later that the company's already out there marketing, which you invented, uh, then there's a very clear case for, for willful infringement. But aside from specific fact patterns, I think it's, it's a really kind of a risk trade-off um, based upon the company and who you're going to give the notice to. Man, I, I mean, <clears throat> Ron's right. I mean, let me just summarize it by saying it's a mess. And it's a mess because the damages statute allows you to go back, in theory, six years uh, in the United States. And so sometimes we see companies come to us and say, here's our infringement case. Uh, we wanna sue this company. And then they present you with a, a damages model, prospective damages model, and it goes back six years. And we have to educate them and says, well, no, you'll never get that. You'll, and even if you do get it, it will not stick on appeal. You will never get back damages unless you are an operating business and you're talking about a lost profit scenario. It just does not exist. And so Ron sort of carried you forward that the, the first most uh, defensible date for the start of damages would be the filing of your lawsuit. And so in the work that we see, yeah, we do, we do spend a lot of time looking at and working with, uh, you know, prospective investments to understand whether or not they do have 
and have provided sufficient notice. Um, so here's, here's a little bit of why it's a mess. You know, take the example of, of the company that I last ran. In the 90s, all the way through the early 2000s, the company put patents on its splash screen. You'd start up the software or turn on a server, and it would have a list of patents. And the marketing materials would have a list of patents on the bottom. You know, and you could get a product guide or a, an in installation manual, and it would have the patents listed on it. And this only applies to companies that, that are the patentee and are the product developer. But what happens is over the last 20 years, the law on marking has changed so significantly that now it requires you to, for example, if you're going to use that as notice, you have to say not just this patent and on these general types of products, you need to say this patent and this claim against your product and its specific features. You, you have to do almost litigation level connection of patent claims to accused infringing product. And the reality is to meet that standard and to be able to do so retroactively is impossible for, for most operating businesses. And worse, if Finjen had just sold its patents and someone was the acquirer, well, now there's no notice marking requirement at all. <laughs> you know, like it just comes down to when they provided notice at that level to the infringing company. So we, we like to see notice. Um, one of the ways that we like to handle that, though, is because, you know, for example, as Ron said, if, if you provide notice to a company, sure, they can IPR your patent and send it back into a review at the patent office. They can run to the, it's called a race to the courthouse, under their local jurisdiction and file a declaratory judgment action and basically sue you for non-infringement, right, claiming non-infringement of your patent. The response that, that, that I think has evolved in the industry is that before you actually just errantly send out notices, you've already come to terms with the fact that you're going to run an enforcement program and that there's a broader opportunity, for example, to license the intellectual property outside of litigation. You probably have already aligned your funding and financing required so that none of those responsive actions are surprising. And in our experience, if you have done all of those things where you understand we are going to build a program, people are not going to like it, we are both going to license and litigate, and we have our funding available, we have our team ready to do this work. If you can send that signal to the market, interestingly, they are going to assess your commitment to that program. And so, for example, in, in, in our history of doing that, I think we had more than 20 lawsuits and ended up uh, licensing more than 25 companies, uh, we only had one declaratory judgment action filed. And the, the value of providing notice is that the date of the start of damages, that the clock from when you file a lawsuit, we actually can go back if it's done right to some earlier time, one or two years maybe, during which we were actually trying to license a company. And then if it stalled for two years and we filed the litigation, we did not lose the value of that time. So assuming you can actually follow the rules and keep up with the changes for, for notice, it does and can dramatically impact value in your, in your program, in your returns. That's fantastic. So uh, definitely consider notice 
um, prov consider providing if done right. <laughs> if done right, yeah. yeah. Seek counsel so, for that. <laughs> seek counsel and consider notice. Great, that's that's extremely uh, helpful. So I have one more question to the both of you, and then we can move on to uh, quite a few questions in the chat and the Q and A um, from the people listening. So um, we've talked about licensing a particular, uh, sorry, funding a particular program, uh, particular patents, particular um, uh, companies. But um, I mean, that is not the only type of funding available, right? I mean, there, there are, uh, there is grouping and there's, there's funding for, for law firms um, and for, um, for chunks of patents asserted together. Is, is that, a I mean, should, should it be a thing? Should, should um, IP lawyers group together, bring their, their litigation cases into one pool and then uh, seek funding uh, together? What, 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 what are your thoughts on that, Phil? I mean, you, you're a... Uh, you're the money uh, provider. Yeah, and it's a it's an and it's a it's a fantastic question because I, I think this might be illuminating uh, for some of the attendees uh, on this on this uh, discussion. And 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 the reason for that is, I think when Ron described contingency law firms early on, you know, if ten years ago you had gone to a law firm and you had said, "Look, I'll cover fees and costs, but I want your firm to take my case on contingency." there would be a risk analysis. And at some point the law firm would go in front of its executive committee and it would decide whether or not it was going to commit part of the partnership's income and proceeds to a specific case. And it was all done in-house. And, you know, certainly there was some law firms that were more successful at that. And some actually had almost their entire volume of litigation may have been contingency. That doesn't exist like that uh, very much today. There are still firms that will consider and go through that very traditional process of going to the partnership and trying to get everyone's buy-in as to whether or not the firm wants to financially support an individual litigation. But what's happening now um, is that law firms themselves say, well, hold on a second. We can risk share. We don't need to take all this risk. Our partnership proceeds and our law firm's income doesn't need to be completely saddled by these contingency cases. And we know that it's still a product that patent owners or IP owners want. And so <laughs> the law firms themselves have reached out and have now coordinated and built funding relationships with, with um, financiers. And the idea behind that is that, for example, if Soren were to come in and, and finance a law firm, we would say, okay, we're going to look at your law firm's track record. We are going to look at a representative sample of the number of contingency cases that you have either on file, excuse me, or that you're looking at. And we will decide whether or not we give you five, 10 or $20 million, which we would just commit as cash, almost as for operating reasons to pay salaries and expenses that the law firm may have. And in exchange, we would be sort of taking a basket of litigations at the law firm to basically service the financing. Now, the reason why that's interesting is because the diligence happens once. It happens on the litigation team and on the law firm's ability to generate income from its historical programs. Sure, we may look at one or two cases, but it allows the law firm the flexibility to then themselves decide what is their fourth or fifth or sixth case knowing that they don't have to be completely on the hook for the financing and that there's already a financial support mechanism there to the extent that they want to build or bolster a contingency practice. 
So that is already widely in, in play. Uh, Ron, do, do you want to add to this? No, I think, I think Phil did a very good job. I think there are, um, whether it's practitioners from different you know, firms that uh, are trying to look at to doing something together, uh, Phil you know, referred to it within a single firm. Um, either way, there's, you've got to be careful. Um, obviously, there are ethical considerations, and, and depending on where you practice, uh, there may or may not be certain restrictions on that. But I, it is very common uh, in my experience with the litigation funders that they will come back um, sometimes and ask you if you've got other cases. So if you pitch one case to them um, and they're, it really fit their risk profile on a case basis, they may want to know if you've got several other cases that are similar or want to see your other cases, and then they might consider that, that uh, backs the, the firm funding as opposed to the client funding. And so, and so think about that, right? Remember at the very beginning of this discussion, we talked about trying to avoid these binary outcomes. You know, you win or you lose. And then even if you win, it's on appeal and you could still win or lose. And if it's remanded, you got to go back to the district court where you are in a win or lose scenario again with another appeal, right? So if you can reduce that binary outcome in any context, whether it's directly with a patent owner who has the potential to run multiple litigations and a licensing program or through a law firm with the potential to invest in three, four, six, or 10 cases, as opposed to one, it all makes sense. You're trying to reduce the risk and, and that gets you a better cost of capital. That's really the name of the game. I guess the, the, the practical, one practical outcome, at least uh, um, for the, the you know, European patent attorneys, um, representing clients and and perhaps think kind of wondering oh maybe I, at some point i'll have a case that might, might be relevant for for litigation funding or you know i'm, I'm normally advising my clients that litigation is, is extremely expensive and and so on perhaps should be thinking let's look at all of our cases that are our potential litigation and see if we can um, if we can bring them all together and get uh, get get them all funded um, either in conjunction conjunction with a firm like us, or even directly with uh, with the funders. Um, right. So uh, we have uh, quite quite a few questions. Um, I think we'll start with uh, uh, we'll start with the chat ones um, and move on to, to the Q and A. So we have a question from Sherry uh, Alwal. Uh, do you see a, a distinction between patents for something very specific uh, and a platform technology that gets used to uh, in multiple applications? Reason being one can otherwise consider university DTOs as MPEs or where the patent uh, owning company creates products in one field, but then in, it is in effect an MP uh, in another where they uh, uh, may wish to accept their rights. That's a, that's a really good question, I think. So uh, who wants to take this? I mean, I, let, me, let me start on that. I, I think I, I sort of alluded to this, that many universities uh, are forced into the position where they have to enforce because unwilling licensees or unpaid royalties, you know, the only remedy uh, in a scenario like that is litigation. It's the least effective and least cost-effective, time-effective and outcome-effective uh, mechanism to achieve a result, but sometimes it's all there is. Um, so I think that a, a technology that has multiple applications should be looked at from day one as 
what the breadth of opportunity is. In other words, if you have a platform technology, I wouldn't just look at the one company that you're mad at. I mean, you can certainly get litigation funding for that, but I would encourage in that scenario that the university or the tech transfer office recognize the breadth of that opportunity and consider a much broader program, more on licensing, recognizing that not everyone's gonna engage in the licensing discussion and or take a license, but then litigation is sort of the fallout from not taking that license. And so, yes, I do think that a lot of universities get branded um, as trolls. Uh, and I think it's a gross mischaracterization. We're talking about where technology originates and where innovation originates. And there shouldn't be any distinction as to whether or not you've got a big, colorful brand behind you or whether or not you're a grant-based university that had smart people who were willing to commit their time to solve a problem. Um, so I think that would be my, my lead into the answer to that is that um, it does happen. And I think that that's just the casual response that you know, if a university has a, a, a technology and they have to enforce their rights, that it's just easy to brand them as a troll. And I think it's unfair and I think it's inaccurate. Um, I agree with what Phil said. I, I, the only thing I would add is, is when you're, especially in a, in a university setting, tech transfer type of setting, uh, and you're looking at a platform type solution, um, the, the licensing approach can be a little bit different there because it's not done very frequently, but it used to be that you could do field of, of uh, the field of use. So where the university may apply it or have a, a licensee in mind for a specific application of that platform, they might approach them with the field of use license. Uh, it takes down the, the threat of, you know, the implied threat of litigation and also leaves them the ability to license other fields of use uh, for the patent as well. It's not, not as commonly done as it used to be, but it is certainly another option to consider in that setting. Yeah, great comment. Fantastic. Is, is it just fair, I mean, is it fair to say that universities are generally being too soft? I think so. <laughs> well, look, there's a reason in the United States, like I think something like the numbers, like the top 10 or 11 universities are responsible for 95 to 98% of all income from intellectual property licensing. And, you know, those statistics are out there. You can go and look at that, right? So, so last time I looked, there were like 3,400 university tech transfer offices. That means that, you know, 1% of them are generating 98% of the returns. There's maybe 300 of those that are in an elevated status, meaning they're actually generating, you know, one to maybe $25 million a year in, in licensing income uh, into the tech transfer office. And that leaves about 3,000 that may have a TTO, but are deathly afraid of their shadow and maybe aren't sure what to do or are underfunded or maybe don't have the executive uh, or university support uh, to pursue a program. Do we, I mean, is, is, that, is, is there an opportunity here to, to bring together all the, all the patent attorneys representing universities that are listening to this and, and bring all, try and bring all of their clients together um, so, and, uh, <laughs> Phil can fund all of it. So it's, it's so interestingly, I, I will tell you, I spent a lot of time trying to educate universities and it, uh, a lot of time in autumn and it is a noble cause, but it is, uh, uh, very time consuming 
and and the disparity of 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 knowledge and and savvy about how quick this market has moved you know we talk about it in changes of five and ten years but in a tech transfer world it's changes in 20 25 50 years just doesn't move as fast um, I will tell you though that that we have found ways to do this we invest in law firms that, uh, have found a way to penetrate and to, to better educate universities around specific licensing and enforcement opportunities. And we do put money behind that. Um, and so it's been very viable both for the universities and as an investment uh, pathway for, for Soren as well. So we're trying to penetrate, we're trying to bring others into that top you know, 10 or 12 uh, universities, uh, but it is a challenge. It's a big challenge. Fantastic. So next question, uh, any thoughts on the, the biotech realm around use of patents when in safe harbor? So, and I'm not, I, I would full disclosure, that is an entirely different language for me. I am not a, a life yeah. scientist. My, my partner is. So to me I just, well. I don't have a lot to add there. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't, I don't really understand biotech. Um, Wrong. I, 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 no, I'm not. I'm familiar with safe harbor, but uh, we have other attorneys at the firm who are more into the biotech realm. I myself am kind of more from a computer science, uh, electrical hardware engineering. So that's my expertise as well. So so, sorry about that. Um, Question for Phil. Traditional litigation funding capital is very expensive. Uh, With the cheaper capital that your company provides, could an argument be made that uh, cheaper capital leads to more settlement? Wow. Okay. Interesting question. So the short answer to that question is yes. Um, that is entirely the design behind why we think Soren's investment platform is different. Because we're not seeking these high dollar binary outcome wins that you know have a more of a chance of losing than even producing enough income to, to service the return, we're more focused on a broad program. And so two things happen here. If there's a licensing component to, to, to one or two litigations, that's great. But these income events, albeit smaller dollars in the licenses, tend to be able to provide enough capital to service the financing to support the litigations. And that's good for both the company and for the investor. And because that income is available, the cost of capital comes down for that company overall. So if the company has a broader opportunity to both license and enforce they're gonna get a better cost of capital. If however, and this is the other point, if it's just litigation, and and if you're going to a traditional litigation funder, and this is where Soren's a little different, they're going to assume that some number of those lawsuits are going to lose and that high cost of capital is going to be there. And so really what happens is the focus is on the waterfall of proceeds. And so this, I don't wanna get too complex into this, but in a typical litigation funding agreement, the funder gets their money back, their preferred return first, <laughs> okay? So if you borrow 10 million and you file a lawsuit and I pay the 10 million for it and I'm a traditional litigation funder and I have a three times return, you, the patent owner, are now in a scenario where you can't take less than $30 million to settle that lawsuit because you have to give me every bit of what I've owed as a result of the financing first. And so 
If it's one case, that could be a really bad scenario. What if you learn something about that where maybe there's a walkaway settlement at $15 million? You can't do that. You are now negatively impaired in your ability to actually take a settlement, which might be the right decision because of the waterfall construct of the financing agreement that you have. And so, yes, we, we think overall a better cost of capital should focus on the waterfalls for litigation, but should also try and be supported wherever possible with a broader licensing program or with other income streams in the business so that you aren't subject to those more uh, onerous litigation financing terms. That's a great question. Um, great. So another question is, um, it's actually two questions, but they are related. Uh, who is suits for methods of treatment type claims? And then recently, uh, uh, University of Pennsylvania sued Genentech for infringement of its patents, uh, claiming method of treatment. While we know UPenn is never going to make a drug and hence practice its method patents, what is the USPTO stance for patent applications keeping their patents as laurels then practice and make the invention reach its beneficiaries? So it's, it's kind of a hype of, I guess, a philosophical question on trolls or, or, you know, MPs and our universities, MPs and so on. Uh, but perhaps you see something else um, in that. Well, just generally speaking, me method of treatment claims, again, a lot of it goes to how it's prosecuted, how it's written. Um, you're going to be looking if it's, you know, and again, this is... I guess the, the question, I mean, do, do you sue the doctor? I mean, I guess that's where it's going. It, it, it may be a, a pharmaceutical manufacturer or a biomedical device manufacturer. Or it might be the actual practitioner themselves. Or the hospital, uh, yeah. But, um, or a hospital system, uh, if, if, they're, if it's something they're doing, or a clinical system. Um, so it's really, it depends on how the claims are drafted and who they're directed towards. Um, with regards to the second part of the question, uh, I don't know that the USPTO really cares so much about um, whether a, a patent holder is going to practice their patent or not. Uh, the examiners are really just looking at it strictly from the, the procedural perspective. Um, when you get to the, to the IPRs, um, there may be some influence there, but I, I don't know that it matters necessarily to the PTO. Agree. Um, that's an interesting one. Are there financing? I, I remember back in the day, this, this relates, uh, back in the day was when, when IV was the big uh, Intellectual Ventures was, was, was the big player in, in the NP space and they had an unlimited amount of money. They hired uh, a large number of uh, researchers from universities and so on and paid them to invent. Uh, I think that this question relates are there financing resources uh, to invest in filing patents for startups um, versus uh, uh, funding the litigation? I will say, and I think this is, you know, we're not the only ones doing it. And we, we have a startup program where, where we massively discount our rates um, for, for the early days of, uh, um, of startups to, to make it easier for them to, uh, to acquire patents. We don't do it for free. Um, but uh, and I don't know if anyone, uh, I, I think some, you know, some big firms would, would uh, uh, keep, uh, uh, you know, run their timers, but only charge after funding round kicks in and, and stuff like that. Um, do, do you guys know, uh, know of, funding for portfolio creation as opposed to funding for litigation? 
Well, I'm, I'm very much with you. I, I, in fact, the first thing that came to mind for, for me was finding a great partner in a law firm that is willing to either uh, offset fees or delay uh, recovering the fees. The most important thing is that if you're a startup and you're really innovating, that you do adopt a healthy intellectual property program. And if you can find a law firm partner that's willing to support you in that, that is probably the best way to go. Uh, I, I would probably point you in that direction. Yeah, I, I agree with Phil. And of course, if you've got, you know, angel investors or venture capital type investment uh, entities that are looking at you, uh, a lot of them have become very savvy with respect to patents and IP portfolios as well. Um, they're just going to be a little more uh, expensive on the back end when you have to repay them. And, and it depends, and, and it has to do with the stage as well, right? I mean, if, if there's a portfolio that's, pretty clear that it's going to be infringed that it will be much easier uh, perhaps even as part of the litigation funding to get some some prosecution funding um if it's uh, if it's speculative you know you just hope that it'll be infringed one day then yeah i mean it's it's, it's a prosecution play uh, hard to get for free but but yeah discounts are, i mean you know look there's there's and and this maybe doesn't fit with a, a perfect startup but if you're sort of midway through your innovation cycle, you're five to 10 years in, you have some great intellectual property that already has market adoption. You know, it's not uncommon that a, a Soren fun financing would come with operating capital for the business to be used, however the business saw fit to do so. Um, and it's not always where we join the cap table and we take equity in the business. We just take a, a return or, uh, you know, some, some component of value of of what might be built into the intellectual property. But, you know, it's easy to see in a scenario like that where, you know, in a $10 million financing, you know, four or five of that is set aside for litigation, two to three is set aside for licensing, and another two is set aside for the company to use as operating capital. And if it, the business chooses to allocate that to file for more patents or to hire more engineers, it's up to the business to decide. Um, but it's often a component of our financings where there's operating capital as a component. Um, fantastic. So um, next question, uh, with the PTAB's discretion to deny institution uh, based on references or issues presenting during patent prosecution, are patents with a thicker prosecution history, uh, history is any more appealing um, for assertion now, I mean, I guess, I guess, and I will ask the opposite question: Are, are patents with uh, a thinner prosecution history more uh, attractive? I guess that the question is is right for both of you. Um, well, and I've seen I've seen the question on on UPC, and we'll, we'll, I promise we'll get to it. Um, I, I would say that depends. A thicker prosecution history isn't necessarily a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, it depends, honestly, on the number of references cited. If you've got a, a, a patent that's got a very long list of page full of references cited, obviously that's going to be probably more persuasive in front of the, the PTAB. Uh, again, it depends on the panel and what their, their background is. Uh, from a traditional litigation perspective, the thinner the prosecution history, the better, because it gives you as a litigator more flexibility to work with um, claim interpretation and claim you know construction issues. And also, you know, you have fewer opportunities for estoppel issues, uh, fewer instances of that. Um, now, you know, within the last several years, the PTO has instituted the, the fast track programs. So arguably people who, uh, entities against which patents are asserted could argue that, you know, it wasn't a thorough examination. Mm -hmm. um, 
be something that militates in favor of the thicker patent prosecution history. But I don't know that there's a clear cut answer either way. I think obviously the, the larger the number of references cited, the stronger an argument you have that validity issues are not as big a concern. Um, but I don't know that you necessarily want, you know, three office actions and two finals and a couple of appeals in a history. You give yourself more chances to, to create estoppel issues. Uh, and and I and you know I'll I'll make a slightly you know slightly opposite uh, argument that you know we we do we do probably more appeals than most firms uh, relatively and uh, I think what one of one of the problems that you know, we see in prosecution is that uh, there are so many amendments um, and uh, and IP owners are so reluctant to appeal uh, cases because it's it's sometimes slightly more expensive and takes slightly more time so. Uh, so they go for the easy option of, of RC and another amendment, but uh, that that really does weak. I mean, if if you have a K, if, if you have a good point of a good point of law and you can win, um, so sometimes you know, just, just go for it and and you have a stronger balance. I think, and, and maybe this is a unique perspective, but and this clearly is the investor's perspective from a diligence perspective the way that we approach validity first and foremost is to take the patent itself. Let's just assume it's valid. We look at the claims and we try to basically understand where we think the issues are going to be in, in a Markman context. What words are going to be at play? What controversy will exist? And you start to construct what you think will happen in the litigation. And then when you do the validity analysis, you don't start really with the file histories, large or small. So I agree that it's not good or bad one, or, one way or the other, but understanding what arguments you're going to make and using that as the foundation for how you uh, instruct the validity search to be done. You wanna find the best art, the most relevant art, the most challenging art, and you wanna know about that art so that you can understand how you need to refine your position. And certainly as a, as a sanity check, you know, you will go into that file history and you will make sure that your arguments haven't been, you know, sort of written away, if you will, in, in, in exchanges with the examiner. And you will want to make sure that some of those references actually show up uh, on that patent. In certain instances, what happens is that the terms of the art shift generationally. So five or 10 years later, the way that you describe network infrastructure is going to be different. And so we've actually found situations as a result of validity searching that has forced us to put the patents ourselves back into re-exam and to do so to basically address what changes have happened in the industry. So I'm not saying that's a unique approach, but it's a really comprehensive approach to not be reliant on just what the file history has, but to really go out and try and find the best answer for the use case that you're going to be in and to start from that perspective. So our validity searches are obviously more expensive than I think most people's, but, but at the end of the day, you wanna know what you're dealing with from a validity perspective. There's no worse way to lose your money than to not look at the validity and the enforceability of a patent before you go out and hire law firms and file lawsuits. Um, so you have, to, you have to spend the time up front. It's a very interesting question here. Um, uh, from uh, presumably a, it's an, an anonymous IP owner, so presume, uh, uh, presumably an anonymous IP owner, a contingency litigation firm identified our IP portfolio and offered monetization based on contingency. 
Uh, we've always believed there's an infringement case. We're just surprised um, of how we were discovered. Are these firms looking for opportunities uh, using their own uh, market research? Um, uh, what is their process? How do you trust and choose? And, uh, and so on. And I'll, I'll obviously say choose us. But <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, do, do you, uh, we don't see cases actively. Um, do, do you guys, have you guys seen um, uh, companies are seeking What do you think, Ron? Have you seen that happen? I've not seen a whole lot of activity that way where firms are actively going out and courting potential portfolios. There are definitely brokerages that go out uh, and look to, you know, to portfolio owners and say, hey, you know, is this something you'd like to sell or license? Um, and I don't know, maybe that's possibly what they're talking about. But in terms of contingent firms and, and those wanting to go out and actually actively court, um, um, you know, portfolio owners and, and do an enforcement and monetization program for them. It's not a common thing that I've run into before. I would say, how do you trust and choose? Um, do your research, take a look at the firm, take a look at who's in the firm, what their background is. There are some very useful tools online where you can see how many cases a particular attorney or firm has filed, where they filed them, see what their track record is. And um, if it's just someone trying to hustle a, a you know, a quick case, uh, probably not a good call. If it's, it's someone that's got a long history of doing it and has a pretty good track record, um, then it might be something to consider. I've only seen it a couple of times. I mean, and frankly, and, and I'd, I'd say my response to that would be, I would look around at what else your business may have done recently. Did you put out a press release on a new drug? Did you launch a new product? Are you making a presentation on new technology at the year's big tech expo? Um, you will find these sort of use cases where um, uh, a firm, for example, and, and I'm just going to pick on them because it's easy, uh, has a lot of success litigating against Samsung. And so if you launch a product that happens to be in competition with a known competitor and someone has experience against that, right, and the conflicts are already clear within their firm, sure, they may be reaching out for that. Um, my, my answer on how to deal with that would be you need to pick up the phone and call as many people and you know about the IP space. Call us, anyone on this group, and, and ask these questions like, what should I do? How should I consider this? Should I just go this first route? Because I think you would learn a lot of things just about the questions that someone like Ron or Zav or myself would ask you about how you ended up in that situation. But, but there are very few altruistic uh, motives out there. So you really need to understand what the motivations, um, uh, what the motivations are. Right. So we, I think we just have three or more que or, or four more questions and we way we have fantastic questions. So we're kind of way over time, but that's a, in a good way. Um, it is that one is, uh, um, is about the UPC. Um, I think it's, uh, it's Mark's question. I guess it's a question mainly to fill, um, uh, the, the unified patent court in Europe, um, is that is that going to become a, a U.S. troll venue, uh, U.S. Uh, NPE venue? Um, I mean, is, is that is that a place for litigation funding? I mean, I'm adding that. Um, I have some some very clear thoughts that I would share just about litigating intellectual property outside the U.S. in general. And first and foremost is. Um, and, and maybe this blends into the UPC, right? Because I think this is where it's all going to be consolidated. But 
you know, litigating in the UK and in France and in Germany, I think is sort of well underway. And the reason for that is because the focus is, is isolated almost entirely on the merits <laughs> and the costs to pursue an enforcement claim are far less like by an order of magnitude uh, than it is to bring a case in the United States. Um, the penalties are stiffer. Uh, for example, in Germany, if your company is found liable for patent infringement, it's actually a, a criminal uh, indictment. It's not like a corporate civil indictment. Uh, and so the penalties are different. And so strategically and tactically, I think there's some benefits to that. However, and, and this is a big learning that I had personally. When you bring a case in Germany, everybody just says, oh, it's great. You know, you get on the docket, your case is heard in a year and you get this exclusion order. That's not entirely true. Um, in my experience, if you're going to win a case at that first stage, for example, in a German court, regardless of, of which district you choose, I liken that to whether or not you can win a summary judgment motion in the United States. In other words, that case is so clear cut and you have all of the evidence that you can print out and put in a binder and provide to the court and communicate in two or three days with, through a translator. If it's that clean of a case, then yes, I would encourage you to go to Germany. I think that that carries a pretty big stick. And I think you can find global resolution, including your, your U.S., components of those enforcement actions. Um, I, I haven't spent a lot of time understanding how the UPC is actually going to unify uh, all of those courts and what the penalties are going to be, whether all the penalties will be unified as well. But yeah, I'm, I'm a proponent, certainly from a strategic and a tactical advantage, uh, having cases in and outside of the United States. Um, but specifically how the UPC is going to play, I, I'm not sure... Um, I have a concrete answer for you. I think, you know, what, what I tend to find is that with any new law, it's often not written in a manner that's inclusive of all the use case scenarios. And you have various judges, regardless of their desire to have or not have patent cases, don't necessarily want to be the one to make law. And so inevitably with anything new that comes out, and you see this even with the AIA, for example, it takes five to 10 years before things start to stabilize and before you really get a true understanding of how, for example, the UPC is going to, going to be an effective court. Um, but I think you're gonna see lots of people jumping into it, right? So, but I would, I would just treat it with caution. Yeah, well, I, I will just say that the UK is out. So um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and, and yeah, and Germany's, I, I guess, is uh, is Europe's litigation. Uh, well, that's a whole other panel discussion, isn't it, man? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It is. I mean, we, we've had we've had one or two, but not about the UPC. So, so perhaps. I think the, the last question. I think we'll we'll finish with that. Um, or two, two, two questions, but again, they are related. Uh, is about Soren and and its own fundraising. Um, and uh, yeah, there's one on capital costs. So, uh, where does Soren raise capital? Um, and is there an opportunity um, to invest in Sorin? I think it's a very interesting question. And um, I, I, I assume accredited investors or something like that would be the answer, but you'll tell us in a moment. And then what's, um, um, what's the typical cost of, uh, uh, of uh, financing from Sorin compared to the rest of the industry? You said it's cheaper, but uh, I think that, that, that question calls for some numbers. Okay. So I'm not going to try and dismiss the question. There, there are some things that when, you're, when, you're, when you run a fund and, and you're out raising capital, you actually can't really discuss that. So I can discuss in generalities. What you would find is the, 
the, the backers of funds like Soren's are traditional investors. They're pension funds, universities, um, financial institutions, high net worth individuals, um, depending on the type of capital and the return profile that you're offering. Like if you're offering 10% returns and they're guaranteed because they're backed by insurance, you're gonna get one set or one group of investors that are interested. And in some instances, if you offer 30 or 40% returns, but there's more risk to it, you're gonna get a smaller group or maybe a subset of those larger investors who are interested in your, in your portfolio. But yes, for the most part, they're all accredited investors. They all meet basically defined constraints uh, per the IRS and per the SEC and FINRA. They have to meet requirements. Um, and yeah, you can be an individual investor, but you have to be you know, sort of a, a high, very high net worth individual investor to put money into a, a fund like the one that, that Soren has. Um, but the other part of the question was cost of capital. And, and I'll try and keep this brief, but <clears throat> you know, we mentioned two times or three times and first money out, that's very expensive money. That's 300%. Let's just call it what it is. Um, I loan you 10, I want 30. And if you get 30, I'm taking all of it first. If you get 40, good for you. You get 10. That's how litigation funding typically works. And it's basically priced on a matrix of risk over time. And you add on top of that how much capital you need and you know, sort of some of the intricacies of the program. And that gets you your rate. The, the way that rates are determined is because if you can only have a certain confidence that your return is going to pay off. Like if you're only 50% confident, you're going to have a three times or a two times return. But if you can do diligence and the facts show that you can have a confidence, maybe 60% or maybe 70% that you're likely to prevail on some number of issues that may fall in your favor and inch you closer to being able to generate a positive return in those cases, you can redu reduce the expense of borrowing. So when I say I want you to have a licensing program or other income in your business, or maybe a balance sheet from product sales, that's because if you can service that loan or that financing or that note, whatever it is, if you can service that and there's some guarantees or more confidence around that, then we don't have to price you at the maximum of risk. So pricing is basically on the risk and the more patents that you can add in, the more enforcement actions, the breadth of a licensing program backed by corporate revenues, you, you move closer towards bank financing. And I'm not saying it's bank financing, right? If there was no risk and all you had to do was pay 5%, any bank will lend you that money. But most banks won't and don't know how to look at intellectual property, won't count that as a viable balance sheet asset. And so what Soren is doing, when we say credit-minded, we're saying, we like IP. We're willing to look at it. We think we can look at it and reduce the risk of our investments so that we don't have to charge you as much. And we're targeting companies that would otherwise go to banks, but banks are saying, we don't look at IP. We're really sorry. We're happy to take it and put a lien against it, but we just don't know how to value it. And therefore we like to sit sort of in between traditional litigation finance with those binary high cost, high risk outcomes and what you would prefer to do in bank lending, but because they don't look at intellectual property and don't know how to apply the expertise and all of the things that are involved in litigation, we tend to fall right in the middle. And that's that credit mindset. When I say downside protected, we're thinking more like a bank 
while considering intellectual property assets that other litigation funders are trying to work with. And that's what affects your cost of capital. Less than two or three times. Yeah, I mean, in some instances we cap out at two and a half times. We have deals where we cap out at 1.5, 1.4 times. Um, in some instances, it's just an interest rate. It may be that we take an 18% interest rate, which is akin to bridge financing for any venture debt type deal, where we'll take 18% on the money that we loan you. And granted, we know that you're going to use it for very risky purposes on, on the intellectual property enforcement, but we've already assessed that risk. Yeah. And we've assessed your company's ability to repay that note. And because of that, you get that lower interest rate. Fantastic. Well, um, that's a great question. Thank you to whoever asked. Yeah, that. <laughs> I, I, generally the, the questions uh, extremely of extreme high quality. So thank you very much for um, uh, first of all, thank you very much for our audience for this, uh, for, for sticking around and for these uh, phenomenal questions. Um, and thank you very much, uh, Ron and Phil, Phil and Ron. Um, for this uh, uh, really, really interesting discussion that, that you know, for, for me, a lot of it has, has been new as well. Um, so yeah, uh, reach out if you have questions. I mean, yeah, yeah, we, and, and yeah, and that goes that goes for us as well. So you all know where to find us. Um, and uh, uh, if uh, if you want Phil's details, feel free to email me, and I'll send it to you. <laughs> so uh, yeah, <laughs> thank you very much, everyone. Very good. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Until next time. Great discussion. Yeah. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Good luck, everybody.